0: Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is The Most Interesting People I Know, conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Alexander Zajic. Alex is a freelance journalist and author with work in The New Republic, The Nation, The Guardian, and elsewhere. Alex has written two books, one about Glenn Beck, and another exploring Trump's America. He's working on a third out in January 2022 called Owning the Sun, a People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. This episode is about one of the most important stories in the world right now, global vaccine production and distribution. Alex wrote a long-form investigation in the New Republic called How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines, which goes deep into the global intellectual property paradigm that is limiting vaccine production and the people who defend it. We recorded this episode before the U.S. announced support for some kind of waiver on vaccine patents. It's important to note that the U.S. did not back the TRIPS waiver proposed by South Africa and India in October 2020. The U.S. is also reportedly concerned that sharing information would undermine American competitiveness with China and Russia in biopharmaceuticals. The idea that it would be bad if more countries developed the ability to make advanced vaccines is emblematic of the harms of prioritizing profit-making in an industry so essential to human well-being. A source in the Biden administration also said the negotiations are expected to take months. Last Thursday, the Gates Foundation reversed course and supported a temporary suspension of IP rights on COVID vaccines. The foundation's statement cites a number of cases in Brazil and India as a reason to support the suspension, but Bill Gates was pushing against any efforts to suspend IP protections right until the U.S. supported some kind of waiver. Gates's firm position for over a year has been that IP protections play zero role in limiting vaccine supply but now his foundation supports suspending those protections because we need to increase vaccine supplies so badly. Either Gates recently came across some really persuasive evidence, or public opinion actually can still matter. As I record this, India is being ravaged by COVID. Yesterday, nearly 400,000 new cases were reported, a number which almost certainly represents a small fraction of true cases. Less than 10% of the country has received even one dose of the vaccine. Hospitals and crematoria alike are overwhelmed and there is an acute shortage of wood due to the sheer number of deaths. Domestic policy failures of the Modi government play a big role in this story, but so too do the choices of pharmaceutical firms and their client governments of the United States and other rich countries. We cover a lot of ground in this episode and dispel a lot of myths propagated by the pharmaceutical industry. We specifically discuss Gates' heavily managed perception as a do-gooder, his approach to public health and what opportunities it forecloses, how Gates' ideological investments run deeper than his financial ones, the affirmative case for IP protections in drug development, the problems with that case, alternative models of incentivizing drug development, the incentives the current system creates, a brief history of drug development in the United States, how the U.S. military developed a majority of successful vaccines made in the 20th century, the story of South Africa and AIDS drugs, the TRIPS waiver proposal, whether it's true that IP is the reason we aren't maximizing vaccine production, Moderna's empty promise to not enforce their patents, the argument that profit motives haven't been strong enough, the PR boon vaccines have been for big pharma, a response to Gates' argument that IP is necessary for quality control, how a tech billionaire became the de facto global public health czar, and the role he really plays in the public health space. I think this is one of the most important episodes of the show so far. So much rides on whether governments make decisions that prioritize global public health, even if they come at the expense of the profits of one industry. I encourage you to check out the article and to buy Alex's book when it comes out in January, 2022. Here is Alex Zajic. Uh Alex, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
0: Yeah. Uh, I came across your article on, on Bill Gates um, and his role in kind of shoring up intellectual property, uh, the intellectual property paradigm that undergirds like pharmaceutical production and I was really excited to see this because I first came across Gates and his role um, in IP for vaccines in this Kaiser health news article, uh, maybe like a month or two back that kind of mentions that like the Gates foundation um, pushed Oxford to not public source their uh, or open source their, their vaccine, um, which kind of like took me by surprise. Um, and, and it may not be that surprising to anybody who knows Gates very well. Um, and so I guess like, I just want to state sort of how Gates is seen within the effective altruism community, because that's like a good chunk of the listeners of the show. Um, and then like, we'll talk a bit more about like where that's right and wrong and, and like some of the impacts of, of his worldview um, and, and the things that he's been doing recently. Um, I, I think he seems like this well-intentioned, you know, billionaire who, despite making his money in like maybe not the best way in how Microsoft was run uh, since then, he's done like a lot of good and bettering the lives of people, living in extreme poverty. Um, and, and I think there's a case be made that like the Gates Foundation has saved millions of lives from neglected diseases, um, affecting people in extremely poor countries. Um, and, and so all this, like, I think makes it more surprising to see him pushing for something that seems like it would have a really bad expected outcome, uh, which is like closing off access to information that could increase our capacity to vaccinate the world and do it as cheaply as possible. Um, so that's a, a long preamble. And I guess, like, what is your reaction to that characterization, just to start off with?
1: The characterization that he's mostly doing good with his money. Yeah. uh, (laughs) As a net net positive for humanity.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I certainly don't begrudge anybody um, holding that. I mean, a lot of money, uh, intelligence, and time has been spent to cultivate precisely this image of Bill Gates, um, a, an enormous amount of money. I mean, his media budget is you know, not on par with maybe the um, actual spending for some of the, the public health groups <clears throat> that he's behind, but it's, it's still quite large. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have been subject to, I don't know, probably the average person has probably been forced to listen to God knows how many glowing pieces on public radio, been subjected to God knows how many 60 minutes pieces about his wife sitting on the ground in India and listening with furrowed brow to the the community village elders. I mean, we've all been just pounded with this from every direction. Every time you open up the New York Times, it just on and on. So clearly this has a very big impact in how we see this guy. Um, I mean, the whole Guardian public health vertical is basically a Bill Gates joint. I mean, I don't have the list in front of me, but it's huge. This guy's media footprint. Um, So a lot of people have this perception, um, which is very intentional. And getting beyond that perception is tricky because a certain amount of that picture um, is undeniable. I mean, if you look at numbers of vaccines administered, donated, X, Y, Z cases of disease avoided according to this or that agency, then you say, well, how could anybody possibly have a problem with this activity? And to a certain extent, a limited extent, that that, that's true. Um, But you have to step back from anyone with this much power and this much ability to basically determine entire frames and, you know, fields of gravity like Bill Gates does and say, okay, what is being not done at the cost of all this activity? And what are the requirements of all this activity? And what alternatives is Bill Gates actively obstructing it might not only have as good of an outcome, but perhaps even better outcomes. And you don't need the COVID uh, pandemic to have that conversation. You can start with his sort of approach to public health from day one has been, his critics allege in extremely, and people that have worked with him can, can attest, an extremely technocratic, techno-centric approach to public health. He tells governments, you have to spend XYZ number of dollars on vaccination, and I'm going to incentivize that activity. And, you know, if you focus on the vaccines that are administered, then hurrah, you know, especially with something like um, malaria. Mm-hmm. Um, not a vac- vaccine necessarily, but, you know, Good is being done. However, he is a known enemy of more social approaches to public health that take into account things like inequality, general standards of living, education, um, you know, things that are foundational to any kind of serious conversation about um, public health in the developing world. And he sort of pushes resources in one direction um, towards. The administration of products that are developed by big pharma which takes us a little closer to the the article that brings us together today um and you see this model up and down the line of his activity in the world whether it's education where his paradigm that he advances is very much based on you know um ipads and software or it's agriculture where he's basically hired Monsanto's top researchers and executives and is now pushing an agricultural model on Africa that is extremely dependent in, and cultivates extreme dependence on uh, GMO seeds and a certain vision for, <clears throat> of development that is actually being resisted by quite a number of people in these countries where he operates. So so when you kind of look at the overall system effects and opportunity of costs of these, um, seemingly benevolent activities then the picture starts to change and you have to ask a lot more difficult questions and the answers are not nearly as obvious as they may seem when you listen to the NPR um reports about this or that program which is saving so many lives because Bill Gates has devoted his wealth to making the world a better place
0: yeah yeah there's a lot there and I think just for the sake of uh clarity we'll be focusing mostly on the, the vaccines and the global ip paradigm that uh support them but i i think it's just this really interesting point where like gates is doing good for sure in some respects right but then he's also as you're mentioning like shoring up the more or less the existing world order that has produced extreme levels of inequality and environmental destruction um and it's it's sort of like you know, I, I'm thinking of like Winters Take All, uh, the the book that looks at like the people who have done the best in the world and then are giving back in a way that like makes them look good, but ensures that like there isn't really a fundamental change that's happening. Uh, do you think that's like a, a fair description of, of how Gates operates as well?
1: I mean, he's certainly a status quo figure. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, whatever edges that he is attempting to sand down on the system, I don't think anyone has ever mistaken him for. Uh, someone who's interested in uh, fundamental um, change or, or replacing that system with something that um, has very different assumptions about, um, you know, (laughs) how much power should be invested in uh, individuals or corporations or industries. Um, He comes out of a very ruthless tradition uh, within capitalism. I mean, he's not just some small shop clerk who got lucky. I mean, he basically made a decision to monopolize um, a big chunk of an emerging sector and drive out anyone who challenged him um, to the point of illegal anti-competitive behavior, which is what he was being vilified for um, when he jumped into public health, which, you know, we can talk about um so yeah i mean he's clearly about um reinforcing things as they were before he was the most wealthy man in the world and as as they remain with inequality is you know um deepening with every passing day um so yeah that's that's really not up, up for debate so anyone who is thinking he might be part of some better world capital b capital w um, I'm, I'm not sure what they could possibly point to or or reference because there's really nothing in the record to indicate that he has any interest in fundamental change.
0: Yeah, I, I'm thinking back to uh, Steven Pinker, who has written these books like The Better Angels of Our Nature, um, and, and Enlightenment Now, which are basically book-length defenses of a world order that is rooted in markets, is rooted in like liberal democracy, um, and you know, these have led to unprecedented declines in, in violence and improvements in, in public health outcomes and, like, all these things. And, and Gates is always, like, the number one blurb on these books. Um, and at one point, I, I found them quite persuasive. And I, I think, like, there are some claims that are true. Like, violence has declined. I think that's, like, true. What you can attribute that to is, like, much more debatable. But it was always interesting, like, you know, this guy who's the richest guy or the second richest guy in the world um, is has like a vested interest in justifying the system that made him that way and keeps him that way. Um, And say like, look, it's actually not nearly as bad as you think it is. All these things are actually improving. If you look at these metrics, um, things are getting so much better. And, and I I think like that's too far afield maybe to, to get into and all the details. And like, I do think there's been genuine progress on a a very wide range of, of uh, topics, but like what you can actually attribute that to is really where the debate uh, gets interesting. And I, I think to say like, the Steven Pinker view that like neoliberal capitalism is, is responsible for all, all the good that's happened in the last 50, 60 years is, is wrong. um, But yeah, I always just thought that uh was an interesting example of Gates, like, you know, being like an intellectual siding with like an academic, but like somebody who's saying what he wants to hear and not, you know, getting along very well with people like Jason Hickel, who has like an alternative view of the world.
1: Yeah. No, Gates is famously not <clears throat> very patient with, uh, challenges to his view of the world, or or people who who push alternatives that he considers, um, you know, fanciful or childish or whatever insults of the day he, he happens to be hurling at someone. Um, but I think one important point to make is you described him as having a vested interest in this system as it is, which is obviously true. But I think it's it's more than that. Um, you know, when people talk about how the Gates Foundation is invested in this or that company, you know, fine. But I I think ultimately the real driver at this point in his life is not, you know, any kind of financial um, interest at all. It's more a profound, deep rooted, ideological loyalty and dedication to this system. And it's, um, the ideas that constitute it, like he genuinely believes that this is how things should be. And it's the best of all possible worlds. Um, and obviously he has a you know good reason to think that, but, um, I, I, do believe that that is sort of where he's coming from more than just it's in his interest, which, which feels a little bit too, um, superficial given, um, given how he has, um, demonstrated you know his commitments
0: yeah yeah i would agree I, I think uh vested interest i mean in the in the broadest sense um yeah and and yeah so i guess like people might be wondering a little bit like <laughs> you know what exactly we're talking about here and so i i kind of want to step back and just talk very basically about the role intellectual property plays in in drug development um and so can you just start with like laying out the the affirmative case for like why we should have patents on on drugs that companies develop
1: <laughs> Well, the industry line has always been that drug R&D, new medicine R&D, is a very capital intensive thing. Mm -hmm. And it requires enormous outlays of um, investments in uh, internal laboratories, scientific talent, clinical trials that may fail, all of these things. And because most drugs fail, they have to eat the costs of, you know, I forget the number that they throw on now, but it's, you know, dozens of failed drugs um, for the one that hits. Mm -hmm. So when the one that hits hits, it has to pay off big to cover all the failures. And the only way that the profits from that one hit are going to equal the scales is if they're allowed um, a monopoly period. Under the current patent system, which is uh, works out to about twenty years effectively, but in practice, uh, there's all sorts of things they can do to, to tweak that period so it's actually much longer. And then sometimes it's it's all but um, uh, indefinite. So that's their argument that you know, without the the incentive um, of monopoly profits, they wouldn't bother with all of these um, all of this research and there would be no failed drugs. There'd be no successful drugs. There would just be no drugs. Mm -hmm. And we'd basically be eating roots (laughs) and our doctors would be applying leeches to our faces every time we got sick. Um, And they've basically been saying the same thing since like basically the thirties and forties, fifties is when this argument really started to kick in. And then the propaganda system that honed it and basically made it like full blast in our culture, was set up in the early 1970s. So it's a pretty new thing where, um, you know, it's a professional, slick PR operation. But but they've been saying it in one form or another now for about um, 70 years.
0: And a key part of this is if they did not get a monopoly patent, then they could do all the work, come up with a formula, get it approved, and then some other company could just copy the formula exactly, sell it. This is like a generic drug. And they could sell it basically just above cost and so the other company is making a profit, but the company that developed the drug is actually like so, so far deep in the red that they're not making any money off of the work that they did.
1: Yeah. And that, you know, applies to all industries and all, I mean, that's been the rationale for the patent system from the beginning yeah. there has, there has to be a reward. Otherwise there'll be no progress. Right. There'll be no incentive.
0: Right. And this is like intuitive, I think to a lot of people. Um, and, and so what do you think is wrong with this case?
1: well the first of all you start with the evidence um the idea that scientific progress will come to a grinding halt without 20-year monopolies enforced by either the us government or the world trade organization basically ignores thousands of years of human history in which breakthroughs were made and things somehow progressed like people are going to do science And um, they have all sorts of reasons for doing science and wanting to come up with new medicines. Even today, there are people working in nonprofit labs and who don't care about being billionaires and having, you know, Lamborghinis with vanity plates. Um, They do exist and they will always exist. So so that's number one. And, you know, number two, there's an argument that even if you accept the incentive structure of the patent system, Medicines are not widgets; they are things that have a different kind of value, and they always have uh, in our civilization. You know, they've been associated with, you know, from the earliest times, the sort of you know the sacred as opposed to the bizarre. Uh, although people have always sold them at the same time, um, and because of that, there is a very good case that they should never be allowed to be controlled by um, one person or one company or group of companies, because medical science is of a different category and it should be available to everybody. And um, all medicines are ultimately the result of a cumulative process of incremental advance over incremental advance going back a long time. So the idea that anyone has invented, say, remdesivir um, before even getting into all the government science that, that it was based on is just absurd. Um, so, I mean, you can talk about the the problems with the lone inventor idea that, that this theory is based on. Um, you can talk about the ethics of it. You can talk about the practical value of the incentive. You can talk about the fact that these companies are not innovating very much and they're lying about what they're doing with their money. Um, you know, they're not plowing all these profits back into R and D what are they doing with it? about a third of it goes into marketing, you know, another huge chunk goes into lobbying and then another huge chunk goes into stock buybacks and executive pay. And most of the R and D is being done. The important R and D is being done in the public sector. It's this huge subsidy in the form of, uh, government grants to academic labs that come up with the breakthroughs and they're allowed to create these little spin-off companies, which they flip to pharma. And that's how the system really works. So the idea that they're being, you know, incentivized by monopoly profits to, to drive progress is just wrong on its face before you even start to look at the other, um, arguments. And once you accept that, then you realize, okay, if it's not necessary and they're not doing what they say they're doing, how else can we reward um, medical progress? And it turns out there's all sorts of ways we can do that. You can have prize systems, prize competitions, which pharma actually engages in themselves. Um, you know, you can just pay people really well, which is why people don't mind working in a good, fully staffed academic lab that's well resourced scientists are just happy to get a paycheck and you can also pay people a lot of money for coming up with socially valuable um you know medicines that are actually connected to human needs and and, um, public health threats which is not being done right now by pharma um and we could change the system so that if you came up with a new treatment or a new antibiotic or, or a new vaccine you get a quarter million dollars get a million dollars Hell, you get $10 million, whatever, but the medicine is not monopolized and everyone gets to have it at an affordable price. I mean, you can still have, you know, lavish rewards for people who who come up with breakthroughs. You do not have to have the system where, you know, this investor class is literally, you know, has an IV of human blood into their bank accounts day after day after day. They're making billions. The the profit margins in pharma are the biggest profit margins in the economy. Even bigger than tech? yeah, wow,
0: yeah in terms of
1: in terms of the actual ratio, yeah
0: yeah, because I remember looking at like the when I learned how to read a balance sheet, um, I looked at like Facebook and Google and it was just like these guys are making like 40 fifty percent margins um, compared to like uh, companies I worked at when I was consulting and they're making like you know 10 or 20 percent um and you just see like yeah this makes sense like zero marginal cost of reproduction uh they're both basically companies that are built on ip um
1: yeah i mean if you if you once you come up with the formula and you control it i mean most things are incredibly cheap to make i mean the the aids drugs in the 90s that that caused the last huge ip fight you could, they were being made for a dollar at the end and the companies were still trying to justify fifteen thousand dollar price tags wow
0: yeah, I, I, I want to close out on what an alternative model could look like in more detail, because I, I think that's really important to understanding this debate um, and pushing back on some of the claims, because you'll see people, uh, there was like a survey of economists um, who are like, if they're asked if IP restrictions were done away with uh, for COVID vaccines, uh, would that decrease the availability of vaccines for future pandemics or like for the rest of this pandemic and you know majority said yes of course um and like even if you're taking that on face value it's already like such a blinkered view of like you have two options you can like get rid of the patent system right now with no like replacement um or you can just keep the status quo and i think like understanding what the alternatives look like what they've looked like in the past is just essential to, to making any sense of this um but i so we'll come back to that in, at the end. Um, and I, I think it's important to understand, uh, like, w- what incentives this profit motive creates for pharmaceutical companies, because, as you mentioned, it's it's not often to actually innovate and and create uh, cures and and vaccines.
1: I mean, the incentive is 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 pretty obvious. It's it's whatever drug is going to um, make the most money, and that's quite clearly not going to be some hookworm that's killing millions of people in the global south. It's going to be. I don't know, a balding pill, an ED pill, um, some cancer drug that extends the life of some very wealthy cancer patient by four months, Um, you know, a blood thinner targeted to, you know, upper middle class people, 80 and older in in a handful of countries that can afford, you know, to pay it. Um, But the incentive is clearly away from, the diseases of the global south that are responsible for most of the human misery, um, curable with with the right um, focus, uh, curable human misery and death, and also the, the greatest public health threats such as coronaviruses. I mean, these, these companies that are now posturing as the saviors of, of the planet were not putting much money into pandemic preparedness. They could have cared less. These are super um, high-risk investments with no guaranteed market. And that's not what interests them. The incentive is all in the other direction. And uh, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense in an age of pandemics to allow this uh, to continue.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's something that's, like, astonishing, right? It's, like, if the government had invested in, like, even just, like, PPE at the beginning, or, like, 10 years ago, um, it would have been very, very cheap to have, like, enough masks for, like, You know 10 masks per person in the united states and just like warehouse them somewhere and then just give them out for free when a uh, respiratory disease starts going around like this um Mm -hmm. and nobody did that because like that's just not what we're very good at as a society or as a government anymore um but like the idea that a company is going to do this instead like maybe it is true in like economics 101 but in reality it's just too risky of an investment and these companies are not even thinking on a five-year or ten-year horizon um, oftentimes, sort of thinking about the next quarter and and the uh, no the quarterly reports that are going to yeah exactly there.
1: exactly and they and it's worth noting that the decline in vaccine research on the part of, of U.S. drug companies really fell off a cliff right around the time the uh, monopoly incentives started to increase and they started to have um, greater scope of expanding monopolies greater access to government science and the the money really started to pour in in a major way in the 70s they basically just dropped all the sort of public-minded um you know costly but slightly riskier sort of um public health oriented research that they were doing and and the government was freaking out you can go back and read all of these congressional hearings where they would drag the ceos and be like look who's who's driving the vaccine car and they would just be like not us
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You even quote uh, like the CEO of Merck warning Congress saying like, Hey, the current system and the current IP system is making us not invest in vaccine uh, development.
1: Yeah. And then AIDS hit and they didn't even have any interest in it. They didn't because they were afraid it was bad for their image and the companies didn't want anything to do with, with AIDS research. Finally, the government that led by the, the National Cancer Institute led a crash course that resulted in the first AIDS drug ACT. And, um, basically got wrestled away by um, blanking on the company. But basically they wrestled it away from the government and started charging these outrageous monopoly prices, which they then did the exact same thing again with the combination therapies. And uh, Uncle Sam just keeps letting it happen. It's just embarrassing at this point.
0: Yeah, I I mean, and this makes me think of um, this like incredible quote from a Goldman Sachs presentation that circled a few years ago. And it was like about biotech or something. And this analyst says like, you know, it's, it's unclear Uh if uh, cures for diseases represent a sustainable business model. (laughs) And It's just like, there you go. I mean, that's just like, why would you cure something if you could treat it for 10 times the price year over year? Um, and you and I are both interested in psychedelics and this is something that makes psychedelics not a very prosperous, uh, good prospect for companies because you know one good trip might actually cure somebody's depression or ptsd um and that's just not like what these companies are about
1: yeah yeah that is a striking quote isn't it
0: yeah um and and so yeah i I think uh the history is really interesting here um both of like what things were like and also what are the some of the specific harms uh, of this system and like what's happened when a country has tried to like get outside of the, the IP paradigm. Um, but yeah, so, so let's just start with like, what was the middle of the 20th century like for drug development in the United States?
1: Middle of the 20th century, <clears throat> let's, let's assume that means like World War yeah, II. Yeah,
0: yeah, let's, let's start there. Yeah,
1: that that's basically the hinge event where the modern drug industry and its relationship to the government comes into focus and, it, and the, the sort of machine that we now know is built, where you have massive public research sector paired with very profit-minded, patent-obsessed private drug companies. And both of those things were very new to the middle of the 20th century. Previous to World War II, the government had very little footprint in research, especially with infectious diseases. And the private drug companies were generally small and they were ethically conflicted on whether they could patent anything at all. There was a very uh, strong taboo in this country and all over the world against monopoly claims on medicines because it violated this code that, you know, kind of went all the way back to Hammurabi um, or Hippocrates rather, sorry. And, And that stuck. It stuck for a surprisingly long time but it started to break down um, around the middle of the 20th century. And then after the war, you have this sort of conflict between the new deal Democrats and this ascendant um, drug industry led by Pfizer, which was always kind of like the bad boy of of the group, (laughs) uh, even at the very beginning. And um, they basically said, we want rights on all of this, science that you're funding. And the government basically was still sort of, the ghost of FDR was was still alive in the Democratic Party. And they basically said, why the fuck would we let you control all of this science when we're paying for it? And you're gonna charge Americans an arm and a leg. And they had this war that sort of lasted a long time. Um, But industry basically came out on top and then started, you know, slamming (laughs) the government's head against the mat during Reagan um, but between the World War II and Reagan, it was very much a tug of war and um, sort of liberal Democrats fighting to, to rein in um, pharma and its access to government science, which then as now was the sort of wellspring of pretty much every major useful um, invention and breakthrough. And so... What else to say about, about the, the middle of the century? Uh, antibiotics. Here's a perfect example. Like Pfizer became Pfizer on the back of government contracts to produce penicillin. They were just like a sleepy Brooklyn drug firm. And they got a huge contract to make penicillin during World War II. And they got big. And, you know, penicillin was a non patented drug during the war. It was just produced under sort of an emergency order, Um, and the government controlled the rights. But after the war, the drug industry basically started gaming the patent system, and they started patenting these lesser antibiotics left and right, and they charged incredible markups on them, and they formed cartels, and the first big drug scandals were around these these cartels, and um, the Federal Trade Commission got involved senate hearings and that's when everyone kind of woke up to the fact that this industry was not the local pharmacist that they grew up with on the street on the corner um and there were all sorts of scandals in in the late 50s and early 60s around safety um you know they were resisting regulation and and things kind of took the form that they still have now where they're constantly living in terror these companies of um public anger over prices and um you know outrage over, over over the um the cost of drugs that are made for pennies and they spend a lot of money to divert the conversation away from that towards you know the unfortunate necessity of incentivizing progress and then that takes us back to your first question.
0: Yeah. And and I think something uh, stuck out to me in your article, um, this might've actually been a different article, but you said that the US military played a significant role in developing more than half the vaccines invented in the last century, um, including 18 of 28 vaccines for, for preventable diseases, flu, measles, and rubella, you, you name. And, and so I think like one of the counters you'll hear from people is that like, you know, the government's just not good at innovating um, and it's just in, incapable of doing, like the hard work that only these private companies can do. Um, but I, that just really stuck out to me, and I, I didn't know that, that that was true.
1: Yeah, I mean, nothing focuses the mind like a, like a war. Um, and the reason the military got interested in an infectious disease is because in Cuba and in the Philippines, more soldiers died from mosquito bites and, and diseases um, and bad water than from Spanish bullets. And after the Spanish-American War of 1898, the military said, we need to get a handle on these things. And also the Panama Canal left a whole lot of corpses. Um, so it was really a strategic investment based on like national security and sort of military concerns. And then from there, it kind of blossomed out into um, other areas. But um, yeah, World War I, same thing. Um, Spanish flu coincided with world war one, which, which focused the military again on infectious disease research. And, um, that just kind of continued and, um, well, yeah, the, the, an enormous amount of stuff comes out of, out of the U S, uh, military research complex. There's a, a prostate cancer drug extandy, um, which was developed with, with, uh, funds from the U S military. So that, yeah, their fingers are in all sorts of things. And, um, and, and they, Again, that's that's really where, where the sort of high-risk research is being done. And then it's just privatized on this conveyor belt. Um, and industry takes it and says, look what we made. And we're going to charge you an arm and a leg for it for the next 40 years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so just to kind of summarize, we see a system where science is being done more or less for its own sake, where governments are investing heavily in drug developments. And it's there's kind of a taboo on even thinking to charge or patent certain drugs and charge monopoly prices on them that changes um in the latter half of the 20th century and then you early, first
1: started, half like late middle got 20th it century. got it yeah it, early middle time.
0: yeah and then and, and then there's you know it's a the, slow the,
1: process there's no like one
0: yeah sure sure and and so there's this slow process that leads to the status quo which is like these companies have convinced us that the only way to have innovation and the only way to develop new drugs is to give them monopoly patents on drugs, even if they were largely developed with publicly funded research, um, and then vigorously enforces patents, even if it means preventing poor countries from getting access to those drugs, um, even if it means leaving people to die from diseases that can be treated or cured. Um, and so I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about the specific harms of the status quo and I think the case of South Africa's attempts to make AIDS drugs cheaper is really emblematic of this. Can can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah. Uh, in the nineties, AIDS hit Africa harder than anywhere else in the world. Um, and it was pretty bad, in you know, other places, but you know, in South Africa, you had something like, I forget the number, but it's in the piece, um, Just like uh, an incredibly large percentage of of young males, um, especially, were HIV positive. And there was no good treatment uh, until the sort of mid-late 90s, 97, I think the first combination therapy was introduced that could halt the progression. And... The companies that ended up with the rights, again, this was a, a U.S. government-led research effort, um, were charging prices geared towards um, the rich countries, and those prices were between ten and $15,000. And obviously, poor middle-income countries, even a lot of people in, in rich countries could not afford those prices, but the, the companies don't really care about those people. Um, and they've even said as much, um, that's not the business model. So, um, around the same time you had the, uh, world trade organization coming into force. It was only in 1995, January 1st, that the Marrakesh treaty became law in every country that was forced to sign the world trade organization. And these two events sort of happened around the same time, which. Uh, was the nightmare that had been foretold by all of the delegations, the developing country delegations that were dragged kicking and screaming to the signing table at Marrakesh. And why did they not want to sign this treaty? Because they knew that if they were subject to uh, the West's intellectual property rules, they would be effectively signing a death warrant on their own people because they can't afford those drugs and until the world trade organization they were allowed to import generic versions and they were allowed to make generic versions and because drugs most you know small molecule drugs are not that hard to make especially if you have a country like brazil or india with a lot of very talented scientists and state investments into research you can reverse engineer most things and that's what they always did um but after the world trade organization they were not allowed to do that anymore uh and they said you can't do do this to us because we are gonna be helpless um, to help our own people. And sure enough, AIDS hits Africa uh like like a biblical plague, and the government of Nelson Mandela passes an emergency law and basically says uh declares a public health emergency and announces that it is going to pursue generic imports, either production in South Africa or imports from most likely India, which had the biggest generic um, industry in the South and 39 drug companies, plus the pharmaceutical associations of South Africa and and the global ones immediately launched a a joint lawsuit against the Mandela government that was um, endorsed by the governments of the European Union and led by the United States. And they basically said, you know, it's awful. But these are the rules and you have to live by these rules or you're going to be, you know, a pariah, (laughs) you know, not the countries that are basically just watching people die so that a few drug companies can make obscene profits on um, these drugs. But but the government of South Africa would be the pariah. Um, And this is the late second Clinton administration. This is not ancient history. And it turned out that the drugs that these companies were trying to sell for between ten dollars and $15,000 could be made for about a dollar a day. And it took an Indian company called CIPLA to go public with that information. Um, and they did it at the World Health uh, Assembly. And it caused an enormous scandal because the, the drug companies, one of the things about their... Their claims is they hate transparency and it's hard to call them on their bullshit because they don't let you see the data they don't open the books but sipla basically called them on their bullshit in front of the world media it was like i can make your shit for a buck (laughs) and and they were like no one had ever done that before like the game was up that the mask was off and the lid you know removed on, on on the pr line and um they were mortified and they were suddenly the prize And, um, so they, they tried to come up with some sort of compromise that was, you know, ludicrous as well. It was still in the thousands, their compromise price. Um, and, uh, you know, global pressure and and the, the civil society groups that were organizing around this basically, um, Created a situation where South Africa was allowed to import the the drugs f- from India, and then in Doha at the World Trade Organization meeting in 2003, they they asserted their right to uh, compulsory license drugs in similar public health emergencies. And it's it's that's a whole other story. But basically, the Doha clause for compulsory licensing is a nightmare to deal with, and it's very rarely used. And the in the countries who are supposed to you know allow it to go. Through an app and happen often um, apply pressure so that it's not done. And that's what the waiver is about now at the World Health Organization. They're saying, you know, you're, you're telling us the developing world is, is saying we're not going to go through the, the compulsory licensing rules in the in WTO because you, they were designed not to work, and you know it. We just need to waive them all. We need to lift every single IP restriction on this stuff because the Doha um, clauses do not work. And um, that's what the fight is about now in the WTO Trips Council.
0: Yeah. And I, I just, there's a quote in, in your piece, um, which is, is astonishing. Uh, it took Washington 40 years to threaten apartheid South Africa with sanctions um, and less than four to threaten the post-apartheid Mandela government over AIDS drugs. So it gives you a sense of the priorities. You know, apartheid is fine, but trying to get life-saving drugs to your people in a cost-effective way is, is not okay.
1: Yeah, I mean it's uh, U.S. foreign policy, um, kind of in a nutshell. And you know that was at the peak of of the U.S. Washington's post Cold War power when it forced through the WTO, when it was you know swinging its weight around in this way, and the arrogance, you know, of that moment and and what they choose to use that power for is just uh, it's still it's still pretty shocking.
0: Yeah, and and so you mentioned this WTO, or sorry, the WHO push to. Basically, do away with IP restrictions on drugs related to COVID. Um, what is the latest on that?
1: Uh, it's still a uh, it's still a standoff. Something like 105 or more countries I don't know the latest number um, are backing the waiver, and uh, the, the drug company governments are still opposing it.
0: Yeah, and this is extremely relevant because you know we're both. Or I, I'm in the States. Or are you in the U S right now? Yeah. yeah so I, I got my first vaccine, um, two weeks ago tomorrow and you know, it's pretty widely available at this point in New York and, and across the rest of the country. And there's a sense that like, you know, the pandemic is ending, life is returning to some semblance of normal. Um, but if you zoom out globally, a tiny fraction of all the vaccines in the world have gone to people living in the global South in, in the poorest countries in the world. Uh, despite them making up the majority of the world's population. And you'll have cases like Canada, which has something like seven um, doses per person reserved in their country, um, while many poor countries have like p- less than 5% of their population covered in pre-orders, let alone like actually shots and arms. Um, and so this is all very, very relevant. And it's not just a matter of life and death for the people in those countries, but we're facing a situation where mutations can happen things can get around the vaccine and the pandemic might be going on for years more as a result of uh, lack of access in the global South. Um, and so I, I guess like one of the things I've seen is that this is true. Like obviously it's unequal. It's a result of massive disparities in, in wealth in these countries and, and power. Um, but I've seen some objections that like IP isn't actually the rate limiting factor. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily agree. I, I, I don't think you agree either but the idea is like you know mrna vaccines like the ones from pfizer and moderna are actually really hard to make um and so even if like it was open source uh there are all the places that could make these vaccines are already making them do you think there's truth to that
1: that's absolutely not true um it's also not true that you know the need could be met by getting rid of ip um both are false, but nobody serious denies that we would be in a much better position. And it also was the moral thing to do. If a year ago, when we had a sense of the leading vaccine candidates, we started to make very comprehensive analyses of manufacturing capacity around the world. And we identified every factory that could be, uh, You know, set up to make an mRNA vaccine. And there is a lot of fallow manufacturing capacity right now because that was not done. And things that could be um, utilized are not being utilized. And we lost that crucial year when whatever additional capacity we would have, we don't have because no effort was put into that because we. Well, we, because the companies wanted control over licensing deals. They wanted to pick their partners. That's what Gates wanted. That's what the governments wanted that basically funded the research that these vaccine candidates um, emerged from. And as a result, you know, nobody can tell you exactly what the number would be. But there's no serious argument that um, we would not have a whole lot more vaccine production going on if the ramp up had proceeded earlier without IP as a factor in that process.
0: Yeah. And so I guess like I want to get into the details of it because I think they matter. Um, a lot of these companies now, I've seen evidence of them like doing voluntary licensing agreements or kind of subcontracting out and like manufacturing sites that might have been used by like one company are now being used by another like Merck is helping make the J&J vaccine because the Biden administration kind of forced them to do it. Um, and and so what would really be different in like a no IP, everything's open source scenario? Like, is it that they can just, there's no need to wait for these licensing agreements to go into place? Is that is that a piece of it?
1: That's a piece of it, yeah. I mean, there was a, a great interview with um, a vaccine producer in Bangladesh who has been trying to get a license um, from Moderna. And he can't get them to return his calls hmm. uh, because there's no other way to make the vaccine. And he thinks he could be online pretty quick um, and contribute to uh, South Asian needs. And it's not possible. Uh, but it's not just a question of waiving um, IP restrictions. The other piece of it that's important is what's known as tech transfer, Um and that is the aspect of manufacture where you need the sort of on-site uh, instruction or assistance of the originator, the inventing company, um, because you know they're the ones who sort of wrote the the manual, and they know exactly which pieces are required for the best production method, and they also have the data that you need to get past the regulatory agencies, and without. That participation on, on those fronts, you're not going to be able to make or introduce um, the vaccine. And that was also something that um, public domain advocates were, pooling advocates were talking about a year ago, because they anticipated all of this. Yeah. They said, we need to put those tech transfer mechanisms in place now. And that's what the CTAP was about in the World Health Organization. It was an intellectual property pool, but it was also something where you could have had... Um, an associated tech transfer mechanism, which now they're trying to do too late, but you know, CTAP is basically just like a stalled effort. Um, you know, there's a lot of hope for it when it was announced last May, but um, it was just kind of abandoned mm. uh, because there was no there was no support, and, and Bill Gates was was a big part of that shift, which I talk a bit about in the piece. Um, so yeah, vaccines are complicated to your point, no doubt, um, but there were you know alternatives being discussed that would have made a huge impact um that were ignored
0: and actively um discouraged and frustrated yeah and and so Moderna uh at least has put out statements saying like they're not enforcing their IP rights during the pandemic um <laughs> <laughs> and so like why could the bangladeshi uh factory not just like take the ip is it because of this transfer or is that just a totally bullshit um <laughs> agreement yeah i, I actually have a,
1: a piece about that i think um maybe it coming out next week in jacobin oh cool um yeah they didn't say they were waiving all ip rights they said they were waiving the patents and
0: and so the ip includes like the know-how and uh like trade yes. secrets stuff like that
1: that is where the crown jewels mm. are the patents are for paper airplanes <laughs>
0: Interesting. Okay. So so this is like smoke and mirrors. It was a PR. It was a PR Yeah. So somebody who's like, you know, I I posted about some of your your work and uh, the effect of altruism forum and and got a lot of like things, you know, the citations back are like literally press releases from the companies themselves, Um, which, you know, they sound great, (laughs) you know, if you don't know. That much about the the details, um, and then you read some articles about it, and then they mention like, oh, you know, Moderna said this, but they're not licensing, you know, their know-how and the trade secrets, and that's actually really important.
1: Yeah, that's that's now the meat of IP in any industry. It, it, nothing, almost nothing, is in the patents. The days of divulging the information needed uh, to make the thing. By someone "quote-unquote" practiced in the art, which is what the constitutional language is, or the language that dates to that time, is is completely outdated. Um, you can pretty much hide anything now in, in trade secrets. And again, that was a Reagan-era um, legal conservative legal um, revolution that, that Reagan and the and the Democratic Congress rubber stamped.
0: Got it. And and so another argument I've seen is that you know part of the reason production and distribution hasn't been as good as expected. I mean, in some ways it's far better than expectation, but there's also been some, some bumps, um, is that AstraZeneca and J and J are selling their vaccines at, at cost over the course of the pandemic. And this actually, there needs to be more profit. You know, they need, they're being disincentivized from getting vaccines out the door as fast as they may actually be able to. Um, and so the idea is like if you just let them set their own prices, they would maximize production and distribution. Now. Um, I,
1: I don't want to get into the relationship between, um, you know, the supply and the cost, but clearly there is one. And um, the problem is not, they don't have enough money. I mean, AstraZeneca is is not a good drug company. They're an incredibly successful drug company. They're one of the most, um, you know, effective evergreeners in the industry. They know how to stretch out a monopoly and squeeze it for all the blood yeah. they can. Um, it's not a question of profit.
0: Yeah. That's- I, so I, I don't <laughs> think the argument is that they lack the capacity and they need more money to to build capacity. It's more that, and this might be morally important, but, you know, it's the market logic that, you know, if they can make uh, $5 a shot now, but then like six months from now, when the pandemic is quote unquote over, they can make like $50 a shot. They're going to slow roll their production now so they can like make more of it, l- make more money later.
1: Well, if that's the case, then it should be taken out of their hands. I mean, this is a global public health emergency Um, public health agencies and governments should be in charge of everything. I mean, that's, you know, go back and look at how these things were handled, um, in the old days when, when Salk invented the polio vaccine, he put it in the public domain, the Eisenhower administration, um, health education and welfare as HHS used to be known, took over the project and they picked some companies and they said, you're going to produce this many, um, Vaccine doses for us, and you're going to be paid this much, and uh, that's how it goes. Yeah, and they, they made a tidy little profit, and they made the vaccines. Some of them tried to cut corners, and they gave a bunch of kids polio, and they lost the contract, and they were destroyed reputationally. But um, you know, we, we are able to make large amounts of needed medicines and vaccines um, without having to worry about. You know, um, the incentive structures within these companies were mostly focused on, um, you know, the returns for their investors and, and executive payouts. Like the, the fact that we are dependent on these logics at all is 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 completely absurd and an argument for precisely the kinds of change that Bill Gates is throwing his um, fortune behind stopping.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And and I don't agree with the framing of, of the, the questions, but they're some of the ones that I've seen. Uh, and and the, sure. the arguments out there. Um, yeah. And no, I, I think it's totally right. It's like, if we're at the whims of whether this company thinks it's profitable enough to do like the thing that is obviously good for humanity, then like we need to just change the system entirely. It, it's, it's insane to,
1: yeah, these companies just be held simply put, simply put, I believe these country, these companies have forfeited their moral right to existence. Like if they want to, if a company wants to produce a medicine, on contract. They should be able to do that. If they want to invent medicines and produce them, they should be able to do that. But f- for these companies to have control to the extent that they do over R&D and production and sales, that is should no longer be considered um possible. Quite frankly.
0: Yeah. And and I mean so that Obviously, you're going to disagree with this, but like there's some people who are like, you know, these companies have like saved us from the pandemic and, you know, their stock prices haven't shot up the way you would expect them to. And they should actually be rewarded more richly, richly for for developing these wonder drugs that are going to save the world. Um, You know, like there's everyone's getting the Pfizer shot, the Moderna shot, like they have like a, some affiliation uh, and, and maybe some affection for, for these companies now. Um, Like like what's what's wrong with feeling that way?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was something that the medicine access activists I talked to way back when sort of were afraid of most. Like they'd say, I have a bad feeling that they're going to roll out these vaccines and the partner companies are going to get to claim the victory and they're going to basically come out smelling like roses because this is an industry that's perennially against the ropes and they're just always one news cycle away from being, you know, hauled before Congress and, and being the most hated in industry uh, in the world, which they usually are in, in polls. Um, and this was a huge PR coup for them. Everyone talks about the Moderna vaccine, not the NA, NIAID vaccine, and the mm-hmm. Pfizer vaccine. And they see the ads on the internet and it looks like they're hard at work on the next pandemic. Um, so yeah um that is not surprising that that people have this understanding of things and it is most unfortunate um and it's not so much the profits that they're making now but you cannot put a price on this kind of reputational redemption because the profits that matter are the profits on their next drug that they're going to extend the monopoly on and that's where they're going to make their billions and it's in All of the other scandals that they get a pass on or are able to bury, or all the congressional attempts to change the system that they beat back with their lobbying shop and no one notices, that's what they're going to be able to do more effectively because of this. And the COVID vaccines could be worth a lot to some of these companies, depending on how many years this goes on and how many boosters are required. But they're thinking much bigger than just the the profits on this event Um, you know they just need to stay out of the hot water so they can keep the system in place and that's what this is allowing them to do um, in a way that I think isn't really appreciated
0: yeah but so in the U.S. is it if like we had said you know this is gonna be a fully public effort and decided that a year ago and you know it had it been trump at the white house where he had like a, a change of heart and decided you know public private partnerships aren't the way to go it's gonna be all public baby um that's the best deal would the government the u.s government have been able to like just spin up production and take things through clinical trials and, and do all these things that are normally left to these companies
1: yeah of course and uh, there's no reason why a government can't do stage three trials we just don't Um, and you know, in the case of COVID, what a government could have done was signed on to CTAP and put all technology and rights into the pool. And they could have, um, endorsed the global comparative trials, which would have been incredibly thorough and comprehensive and given us much better sort of data on, um, you know, ethnic and and racial groups than we got with these private trials um conducted in-house by the companies which as we know slowed things down because they hired these yahoos who like had 98 percent white test subjects in north carolina (laughs) um so yeah (laughs) yeah there's no reason why why it couldn't have been done much better um and uh in like a a a committed uh you know government uh, committed to the idea of of a public good like a lot of them were Mouthing and didn't follow through with. Um, there were plenty of options to uh, to do things in a different in a different way that would have had a much better result and could have you know set the uh, the terms of things that kind of led to a cascade effect where you had other governments also following them and that's sort of what leadership could look like. Um, but you know we, we obviously saw the opposite in the last year.
0: Yeah, but I guess like would that it just surprises me that that would have been possible like in the time frame, right? Like if if so much of this productive capacity has been outsourced to these companies, um, would we have just had to invoke like the Defense Production Act and say like, hey, Pfizer, you're actually making this drug for us and we're selling it it at cost or or we're giving it out for free or whatever it is. Um, Like would that have been the the method used?
1: You mean just for domestic production?
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess like I'm thinking of, you know, these companies... Basically, will often take a drug candidate that's developed by like the NIH or something, and then they'll take it through clinical trials. They'll do production. Um, so there's like this handoff that happens, and and so if yeah. that's not already ha- if like that latter half of the
1: well, they can still be contractors. I mean, mm-hmm. can still use you know contract. I mean, they use contractors. They don't have huge you know manufacturing facilities themselves. Um, in- but instead of these very narrow in selective bilateral deals, what a government could have done was basically run an open licensing uh, approach where, you know, qualified uh, serious um, licensees were were all approved. Um, and it was not a question of, um, you know, managing the market and, and, and managing supplies, according to this extremely uh, rigid and again, untransparent, um, criteria that we still don't quite understand. Um, but again, there's a lot of factories that could be, um, making vaccines that, that are not because they haven't been included on this, uh, in this elite list of, um, you know, worthy, uh, candidates for, for a bilateral, uh, deal.
0: Yeah. And, and you mentioned licensing agreements and requirements for that. Um, I saw an interview with Gates where he was presented with the, the Kaiser health news article, um, about the AstraZeneca vaccine or the Oxford vaccine that they helped push towards a partnership with AstraZeneca. And his justification was that, you know, we have to ensure quality control is there. And, you know, it's really important that people trust vaccines and that they're safe. Um, and that, you know, this is the only way to ensure that that happens is by having these, uh, these bilateral agreements uh what what do you think of that
1: yeah that's another old old line um that the industry has used to justify patents especially in the early days when patenting was still controversial they'd say well this is to protect the public this way we're allowed to control production and and make sure that you know scary individuals that want to harm you are not making our medicines um but look open you know licensing doesn't mean you're, you're going around just, you know, telling everyone to make vaccines. There, there's still some sort of, um, you know, management and regulation involved, especially if this was a, was a who led effort. I mean, the who is, you know, not just Bill Gates and his uh, pharma cronies in the, at the sage council. It's also this incredibly vast network of public health experts, scientists and frontline health professionals and vaccine industry people that could have, you know, figured out who's capable, who's, you know, safe and and compiled a comprehensive list and they could have been checked out. You know, I mean, it's not like, you know, used car parts factories were going to be trusted to, you know, (laughs) to, to make vaccines. Um, So that, that, argument is disingenuous, I think. And it's also quite frankly, a little bit, um, you know, racist because it's very subtly condescending from this sort of, you know, Northern perspective of like, you know, our companies are the only ones who can discern who's capable of making this stuff. Cause these, these third world countries are just, you know, you can't trust them. Yeah. And so, but the reason it's disingenuous is so many of our brand name drugs are already made in generic factories where they're made at the lowest possible cost and those are fine you know when when they're resulting in you know monopoly price drugs with the corporate logo on that but as soon as some of these factories want to produce generics, suddenly they're not safe and that happens really fast
0: i i'm just reminded of maybe the best footnote i've ever seen in an article um uh in your new republic piece you're talking about how uh people argue that uh people in africa would not be able to take the aids drugs at the right interval because they like weren't good at keeping time and you're like oh andrew sullivan made this argument the former editor of the new republic and it actually turns out like they were far better uh than people in the west at, at keeping yeah
1: time. yeah there was a study done and uh, wasn't even close
0: <laughs> it, yeah it's it's really just it's amazing um and yeah i mean i i think like to look at the current system and, and just not see like a massive injustice um You know, even you can look at things like the optimistic view is, well, we've never had vaccines uh, approved and in in less than a year. Right. Like the vaccine was um, discovered and then synthesized and approved in less than a year. And that's like never happened before. And it really is this like amazing technology that's made it happen. Um, But then you look at like, yeah, where the distribution is going it just reflects all of the global inequality that is just the biggest story in the world today and it's just not being told very much because, you know, we've got ours and we're hoarding supplies and we're preventing con- other countries from getting access to drugs even the- when they've like purchased them and they're sitting in our warehouses um, and it's just dooming us all to, to years more of this uh, than we otherwise would. And that's like kind of a separate thing from the IP thing. It's like more vaccine nationalism and it's not just the United States that's doing this to be clear, but um, it's just amazing to see these countries so clearly missing their self-interest um which is that like this is a global public good we would all benefit from everybody getting vaccinated as soon as possible um and because of nationalism because of these companies and their lobbying capacity we just aren't really acting on that
1: yeah that's pretty much the size of it and um you know there are other global you know threats that could undermine our civilization that we uh aren't exactly taking the long view on either so unfortunately of a piece with sort of the the civilization at the moment yeah
0: yeah for sure um and and so i guess like we started this with gates and we've talked a lot about the entire global system for for intellectual property as it relates to drugs um can you just talk a little bit more about like what specifically Gates did and and how he got this ability because this is like this is just a rich guy, right? Like he ran a technology company, made windows, and now he is the most important figure uh probably in global public health and the de- the decisions made there um and that's kind of a bizarre state of affairs right and And this guy's like making serious uh decisions that have real consequences for the world
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, your description of uh, his trajectory is pretty accurate. It's weird. He's just some guy who got extremely lucky um, that, you know, wrote this code at the precise moment in history when it became possible to uh, copyright it. And, um, you know, he was a real dick about it and he was able to, to turn it into a, a long-term monopoly and become the richest guy in the world. And, um, he has parlayed that wealth into enormous influence as you mentioned is a par- probably the most influential guy um and it's just a question of money i mean he's the biggest funder in the world health organization his groups are the best funded groups with seats on you know um the world health organization boards and associated organizations. He's just everywhere. You can't move in that world without knocking over uh, someone who he's paying or who has worked for him or who is in some way dependent on his largesse. And uh, I don't know. I think the way to think about him is, is like in astronomy planets, the bigger the mass, the more gravity is created slash affected. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too scientific because it's not – I'm probably going to say something uh, wrong. But, I mean, mass affects gravity, right? And he's, he's more than a planet. I mean, this guy is his own solar system unto himself at this point. And, you know, when he sneezes, everyone catches a cold. So when the pooling was uh, being bandied about and gaining steam in the early weeks and months – Uh, Of the pandemic, even before the pandemic was announced, you had organizing taking place at an international level among researchers, among public health people, among governments, especially in the global South. And he very forcefully entered the force field and established a mass that pulled things away from that direction. And basically, he sent out a message through all of his Um, representatives who, again, are everywhere and can command enormous resources and budget strings that Bill wants IP maintained. Yeah. And the accelerator was the institutional embodiment of that message. So not only was the message sent out to people who may have been leaning another direction, but it also all of a sudden, and this is important, it gave industry and governments from the countries where those companies are based, something to point to as evidence that they were committed to equity and meeting the global demand, regardless of ability to pay, which was absolutely not true. But Gates gave them cover. That's what he does. I firmly believe that that is the most important aspect of his function in the system. He provides. He runs interference for the companies and their allied governments to basically say, look, we hear you, civil society. We hear you, poor countries. We hear you, vast majority of the human race. But we're on the case. We're working with Bill Gates and his amazing organizations. These glorious multilateral, <laughs> equity-focused, nonprofit groups. Everything's going to be just fine. And if it was not for that, they would have to defend their bullshit, which is so threadbare, and they're so bad at defending that it would be a much different conversation and it would be much easier to knock them out of the ring, potentially, at least when it comes to the conversation. But Gates just is this massive smokescreen that just throws up this, this huge amount of bullshit that confuses the conversation the dynamic changes and he's been doing this since the AIDS debate because when the industry was up against civil society they were getting pummeled it was society civil society versus industry gates comes on the scene suddenly it's gates versus civil society with industry kind of suddenly like relegated to this hinge role and, and the whole dynamic shifted and it's and it's been recast ever since in a way that it's hard to imagine him not being there, but if he wasn't there,
0: yeah, it's Th- that's something like you capture well in the article, which is a year ago, and this is uh, you wrote an article a year ago, and then you wrote the Gates article, or they came out a year ago, and then this one came out uh, I think a week ago, and there was this real sense of possibility that things could be different, that we were not, you know, this is a emergency, this is like a, a war um against the virus and in a war you do things that wouldn't have been done before um usually not good but in this case there was a an opening to do something good and uh that just it went away and it was not like a an accident right it was like a deliberate choice um by by gates and 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 by others um with the ability to to influence the decisions in the conversation um but I, i guess like something there was a New York times article uh, about how the rich countries was it rich countries signed away a chance to vaccinate the world. And they actually mentioned Gates in the article, but it's um, more favorable. It's like the Gates foundation in their licensing agreements with drug companies requires like equity and access or something like basically low, low cost uh, provisions. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, he usually gets a pass in the times in most elite media he gets a complete pass and his claims are taken at face value and he's fatayed um changing a little bit there was a times podcast that that did a whole segment on gates that was more critical than i was expecting but for the most part that's what you're going to get in the times and yeah they they basically linked to his standard um contract i think it was a sepi contract but um you know it's it's meaningless language. And, um, and the actual bylaws in CEPI were, were changed under uh, industry p- pressure not long after the organization was founded in a very little reported um, event where they were troubled by some of the boilerplate and they made him change it. And he agreed to. This is after he did this big self-important you know, unveiling at the Davos that year in 2017, hmm. um, and then very quietly Caved to industry
0: and, and CEPI's is like and, the pandemic preparedness initiative or so, something like that right
1: yeah it's a public private um research initiative that's funded by gates some european governments and, and industry
0: got it yeah and it kind of reminds me of uh there was a talk on neglected tropical tropical diseases at uh, an effective altruism event a few years back and People like something like a million people die every year from neglected tropical diseases, maybe more, and more. and yeah, it's 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 horrible. It's like things that just don't exist in rich countries anymore, uh, both for like reasons of latitude, but also just money. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me is like the drugs were all donated by drug companies, um, and so the costs involved were just to distribute them to people. And you know, I remember thinking at the time, you know, pharma's like got a lot of faults but you know that's that's a good thing they're doing and now i'm thinking of it more as like you know is that just like a pressure valve like it's releasing some of the pressure so people are not focused too much on you know the other ways in which they're ruthlessly enforcing monopoly patent rights to um keep drugs unaffordable for for most people
1: yeah i mean that's that's probably a useful way to think about it um yeah i mean drugs access in these countries would would look completely different um, without the WTO regime, completely different. Um, and you know, if the the regional and, and um, developing country pharmaceutical industry had been, you know continue developing in, into the 80s and 90s instead of being disinvested and, and sort of shuttered. Uh, but it happened in the north too. I mean the sort of there was a broad sort of neoliberal wind that kind of, um caused a lot of disinvestment in in these things that states had been involved in uh but if that had been allowed to continue uh without intellectual property i mean yeah it would be a very very different picture
0: yeah yeah i mean because like that system it allows a company to do some good genuinely but it doesn't cause anybody to question the the fundamental structure right it's it's like look everything's fine yeah, it's crazy that these people are dying, but like we're we're doing our part. Um and the distribution is is a real problem. Um and it, it diverts attention away from from some of the other very real harms that are that are happening in Yeah, And also it
1: diverts attention away from the fact that these companies could care less about these diseases and they are not gonna spend any money on them unless they are basically doing it as as you know, a PR investment. And you know, they claim to be curing the world and you know there's they're just not um they're they're focused on very narrow um niche needs within the wealthiest countries and that's where they're putting that their R and D funds and that's what they'll continue to do until the incentive structure is is changed and there you had mentioned closing out on models yeah there's a million of them like i can't even i'm not the person to ask you should have um thomas pogue on from yale he's got one of the more interesting um, alternatives. But yeah, James Love is has got one um, on basically rewarding outcomes. Um, there's a million different ways to incentivize research and reward research. Like this is, we just happen to have the worst of them all somehow. <laughs> um, but there, there's no shortage of amazing ideas out there. And, and uh, you know, Bernie Sanders has a bill um, that would... Put a couple of those alternatives in place within the nih system and and in works with industry to kind of nudge it but it's the industry is is not going to do it on its own because there's no system that's going to pay them as much as the current system uh right. they're not interested in alternatives they're, they're going to fight to the death to defend this one
0: right you mentioned like prizes which is something bernie's pushed for and it's actually something where people in like marginal revolution like a libertarian econ blog will write in favor of and it's like one of the rare moments of agreements right where Even libertarian economists are like, this is a market failure. Um, No, no,
1: not even libertarian economists. This is a classic libertarian position to be against monopolies. Monopolies are artificial government creations. They're they're expressions of government power. They do not exist in a free market. In a free market, any company that wants to produce any drug can compete with any country that wants to produce any drug. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is free, right? Like it's a non-divisible good. If you have the knowledge it doesn't take away from my having the knowledge right right so i mean libertarians were the biggest opponents to the patent system in the 19th century they, fa- they actually stopped patent systems from being adopted in europe until like the late 19th century hmm. in switzerland the netherlands i think was the last one to to adopt patents so that was like standard right-wing free trade uh politics the economist was was one of the most vociferous organs against patents and monopolies uh, into the 20th century.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And, and it's, I think, just like, a, I, I'm just reminded of, like, Tina, there is no alternative. And when it's, like, this poll put to economists, like, do we get rid of IP or not? Um, what's going to do more good or, like, you know, create the right incentives in the long run? You're just, like, missing this wealth of, alternative uh, perspectives and, and policies and, and structures that we could have to actually incentivize the behavior we wanna see and cure diseases and save lives and like invest in the things that have the highest social returns and not the highest profit returns. Um, and I don't think there's a clear example of this or a clearer case for this world um, than the coronavirus and the response to it. Um, and so I guess I, I just wanna give you the final word and uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and doing this uh, research.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, I'm not sure I could really add um, or improve on what you just said, <laughs> to be honest, Garrison. Uh, I think you just uh, stuck the landing pretty well. And I'll, I, I'll, I'll give the word, last word back to you.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, are you working on a book on this? Do did I, did I get that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's mostly a, a historical look at the sort of very contested rise of the system that we have now
0: yeah no i, mean, I think the history was the most eye-opening to me because I, I don't think i had developed thoughts on you know how pharma came to be um but i sort of thought this is just how things were um and just understanding that things were different in the past and they could be different again um i always find that to be more persuasive than just like you know in a perfect world we could have everything you know nationalized and that would be totally fine um because like we know what this world looks like and it sucks in so many ways, but like we've also seen state failures before. Right. Um, and so seeing that like it's been done in the past, uh, yeah, it's, it's reassuring for me, but, uh, when is that book coming out? Uh,
1: it looks like January, 2022.
0: Cool. Well, I hope it's not as relevant as it is right now, but (laughs) I fear it will be. (laughs) Me
1: too. Yeah, probably.
0: Um, anything else you'd like to plug Alex? Um,
1: Not really. Uh, um, Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot else uh, going on at the moment. Just kind of finishing the book.
0: Cool. Well, the article in Jacobin uh, might be out by the time this launches. um, So I'll be sure to link that and all the work that we cited here today in the uh, show notes. Great. Cool. Thanks, Alex.
1: Appreciate it, Garrison. Take care.
0: This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoy this show, Please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself. Or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.
1: If tomorrow we made AIDS medication free to every patient in your country, as much as they needed for as long as they needed it, it would likely make very little difference in the spread of the epidemic. Why? anti-hiv drugs are a triple cocktail it's a complicated regimen that requires 10 pills to be taken every day at precise times two protease inhibitors every eight hours two combination rti pills every 12 hours what's the problem they don't own wristwatches they can't tell time